Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Jason Flom. You know, at Wrongful Conviction, we're so proud to be a part of the ever-growing landscape of true crime shows that reveal just how our criminal legal system works and just how often it fails and how grotesquely, in some cases, it just collapses on people who are innocent. And this week, I've invited a colleague from another podcast, a, a podcast that I really love, to bring their own unique style to our coverage of yet another insane wrongful conviction case. Late at night on September 17, 2007, five people on Detroit's east side were at a house party watching a football game on TV. Without warning, two men burst into the house and shot the place up. They killed four of the five people, but one woman survived by hiding under a bed. One of the gunmen found her there and told her to play dead. A few blocks away, neighbors were gathering on the street, including 14-year-old Devontae Sanford. When police talked to Devante, he told them that his aunt's boyfriend was a retired homicide cop. So police asked Devante to help them with the investigation, to tell them what he knew about the people in the neighborhood. But in the end, police forced Devante to confess to this brutal quadruple homicide. He was tried and convicted, then sentenced to 37 to 90 years in prison. And remember, he was only 14. In this case, it would take a truly unexpected turn of events for Devante's innocence to come to light. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hey guys, it's Laura Nyrider, and I'm honored to be guest hosting this episode of Wrongful Conviction. I'm the co-director of the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University, and if my voice sounds familiar, it's because I've guest-hosted other episodes of this podcast, and I co-host another series on this feed called False Confessions. Today's episode is one of the most important and shocking cases of wrongful conviction that I know of, and I'm so honored to tell you the story. I'm here with two very special guests, Megan Crane and Devante Sanford. Devante Sanford. 
I'm Megan Crane. I'm an attorney and I'm the co-director of the Missouri Office of the MacArthur Justice Center. We are so excited to have you. And there's no one in this world like Devante Sanford. Devante, we are so happy to have you here. Do you mind introducing yourself too? Uh, how you doing? Uh, my name is Devante Sanford. I'm exoneree. I'm a son. I'm a father, entrepreneur. An all-around amazing human being. We are so grateful to have you here, Devante. You know, your case, when I think about all of the wrongful conviction cases that I've worked on, um, that people like Megan, who's one of my heroes, have worked on, that all of us in this entire space have worked on, yours is always the first one that comes to my mind as one of the most difficult examples of, of just sheer injustice. And it, it starts when you're a 14-year-old kid living in Detroit, Michigan, on the east side of Detroit on Beeland Street. What was life like for you back in the day? <laughs> back in the day? Um, it was, it was kind of hard. You know, I was going through a lot uh, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Like the family dynamic was really wasn't there as far as like a lot of support. You know, my mother, like she was dealing with... Uh, a drug abuse issue. So it, like I had like a lot going on, honestly. Mm-hmm. So you're living on Beeland Street. It's a tough life. You're there with your mom, some siblings. There's there's drugs in the house. This is a tough street in a tough block in a tough part of Detroit. When you think back, Devante, to yourself at 14, what did you think your future was going to be? Growing up, like I didn't hear as often as I hear it now, I didn't hear the word opportunity. I didn't hear the word growth. I didn't hear the word future. I didn't I didn't hear those type of words. You know, somebody would have asked me what your future looked like when I was 14, I wouldn't have been able to even answer that. I can answer it now, but not back then. So you grew up not hearing words like future and opportunity. What what words did you hear instead? Get rich and die trying. You know, uh hustle and no luck. The east side of Detroit is like one of the Worstest parts of Detroit are honesty, like very high crime rate, very, very high crime rate, very high poverty rate, very low rates when it comes to reading and education amongst like the youth. And, you know, you're you're grown up in that environment and you had a couple of extra obstacles, one in particular that not every kid had grown up on the east side of Detroit. I want to ask you if it's okay about your site because I know you've had some issues with your sight. Can you tell us about that? I'm partially blind in like one of my eyes. It happened when I was maybe uh, fourth, fifth grade. And um, I actually, I had a scar corneal. So I had to get like, I used to have to get surgeries, you know. And at the time, I just felt like it was just different things. They was trying on me to see if something was, was going to work, you know. It, it, it caused me a lot of like trauma, just off the simple fact, you know, being in grade school, having to go and, where like eye patches, kids making like jokes and stuff for you and stuff like that. So like that was very like traumatizing. I just got to ask you one other question about who you were before this case happened to you. How'd you spend your time when you wanted to have fun? What'd you do for fun? I was too busy trying to like look for food to eat because mm. I probably ain't eating like two days. You know, uh, I didn't really know too much of like fun and, or enjoying myself or honestly. Outside of maybe going to like uh, uh, a neighborhood like basement party, but it's like looks can be deceiving. Look at now, like I didn't know about opportunity. I know everything about opportunity now. I didn't know about what a future looked like. 
you asked me that question now, my future is very bright. Your future is bright, and I want to hear so much more about that. But, but first, I want to talk about what you had to go through to get to that future, right? What you had to go through to get from being that 14-year-old kid on Beeland Street to the man you are now. This is where I'm going to bring in your lawyer, Megan Crane. Megan, it's fantastic to have you here. Can you take us back to the night of September 17th, 2007, uh, which is when something pretty horrible happened right around the corner from where Devante lived at the time that set a whole chain of events into motion almost unstoppably from the beginning? So it's a Monday night, September 17th, 2007. Um, it's around 1130 at night. I think it was a Monday night football night. So a football game had gone late and was wrapping up. And there are five people inside 19741 Runyon Street watching the end of the game. When two adult men, multiple witnesses report they're around six feet tall, skinny, approach the house with two guns. They start firing a lot of bullets from the outside of the house into the front window, and then they bombard through the screen and front door of this house and just shoot up the living room. They shoot all five adults sitting in that room, killing four of them, including the owner of the house, Michael Robinson, a 33-year-old man who we now know to have been a local marijuana grower and dealer in the community, and four of his friends. Three of his friends pass away, but one of them is shot a couple times but escapes to a back bedroom. In that back bedroom, Michael Robinson's seven-year-old son happens to be asleep at the time, and the surviving victim hides under his bed. She later reports that one of the shooters comes into the bedroom and actually says, play dead, be quiet. And so she survives, maybe thanks to those words of that shooter. And as she's hiding in that bedroom, she hears someone in the basement of the house moving around, rustling, a lot of activity down there. And then they say, let's get out of here. And they both flee the scene. Multiple witnesses report only two people. One of those witnesses is a man named Jesse King who lived across the street. He was a chaplain actually for the Detroit police. He had firearms in his house partially because of his professional position. And he fired back because he had heard the shots and he saw these shooters fleeing the scene and he exchanges fire with the shooters. He definitively says these were two men and he describes their physical build, their height in some detail and the attire they were wearing. Meanwhile, as all this is going on, Devante lives just around the corner from 1941 Runyon Street, as he said on Beelan Street. Devante had heard the commotion. He heard that something was happening around the corner. So it's late at night. He's in his pajamas. He comes outside to see what's going on. So I just want to be clear. So what you've got here is a horrific act of bloodshed, but it has witnesses. And they all said the same thing, right? They said it was two adult men, which is a pretty good lead to go on. But the police go somewhere a little different with this. They go around the corner to Beeland Street. How do the police get there? And how does this go down when they start talking to Devante? My understanding is the police were just canvassing the neighborhood. There are a couple different officers out going down different streets looking for anyone who has something to say. And so as part of that canvas, they're walking by Devante's house and they approach him to say, did you see anything? Do you know what's going on? But things quickly evolve from there and become much different that from that casual conversation. Now, Devante, you are outside your house when this happens. You're in your pajama pants right? You're a 14-year-old kid who heard, heard the commotion, comes out like all the other neighbors did to see what's going on. And the Detroit police 
approach you? What's going through your head as they start to talk to you? Not really, like, understanding what was going on. That whole little ordeal, um, it it changed my life, all honesty. I, I never forget it. And, like, they was asking me questions where I live, where I'm from. Did I, did I hear anything? Did I see anything? And I believe I had told them I had just came from being with my auntie um, boyfriend. He, he was a, a, a retired detective for the head of homicide. They actually knew him. So they hopped on the phone and they called him. He was like, yeah, you know, he just came from being with me. I guess they explained to him what had, what, like, the case they was working on and different things like that. And um, they handed me the phone. And he was like, look, these is my guys, man. So if you know something, help them out. I don't know nothing, but all right. They proceeded to take me home. And they had my grandmother sign the waiver. She signed the waiver. From there, they took me to... Um, Back to the crime scene, if I'm not mistaken. And they gave me a gunshot ballistics test. So, Megan, I just want to make some sense of what's going on here. These police somehow come across the 14-year-old kid in the pajama pants, right, who's just as confused as everybody else in the neighborhood, and end up taking him into the police station for questioning. What's what's going on here? How did they settle on Devante? I'll be honest. I, I find it pretty hard to explain even today, um, decade, more than a decade after this and after spending many years working on this case. But here's my best understanding of how this went down. I think the police officers were doing this canvas of the neighborhood. They come upon Devante. They're kind of just asking him the same general questions as anyone else. But when they realize this Bill Rice connection and they get Bill on the phone with Devante and Bill encourages Devante to help him out, cooperate, do what he can, that kind of is the first domino to go that sets this in, that sets things in motion. At that point, they are looking for someone who can kind of like tell them what's up in the neighborhood. Like who in this neighborhood has guns? Who in this neighborhood's involved with drugs? Who do you think might be involved in this? And so Devante, because he's just been encouraged to cooperate, says, sure, I can kind of tell you who I know who has guns or who's involved with trouble. You know, he was used to being picked on and someone that when he got positive attention, it felt good and had a powerful effect, like any 14-year-old kid. So it felt good to be needed by these police officers. And so they say, can you show us, can you give us a tour? And so Devante gets in the car and um, kind of shows them the way around the neighborhood. Things transpire from there. They take him to the high school. They sit in the parking lot in the high school for a while and try to get information out of Devante. They take Devante to get some fast food. Devante just told us sometimes he'd go two days without eating. They buy him a burger and fries to entice him to share more, give us more, tell us anything you can. And the more juicy stuff, the more relevant information he can give about drugs, guns, crimes, the better. Maybe the more burgers, the more fries you'll get. Right. Be a hero. This this quadruple homicide just went down in your neighborhood. Be a hero. But the thing is, you know, Devante, they took you around the area. They bought you the burger. They brought you back to the station. But at some point, the tables turned, right? They were no longer looking for information. They were looking for you to confess. Can you tell us how it came about that you ended up confessing to committing this quadruple homicide? Honest answer. I wanted to go home. I was scared. Um, they kept promising me that if I was hurry up and get this over with, that's the quicker I can go home. I was at a point, I just, I wanted to be anywhere except for there. I'm 14, barely like, 
experience anything for real. And, you know, um, the promise was if I, I basically comply and, you know, I go through with this, you know, my reward was going home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Megan, can you tell us a little bit more about the interrogation when you've looked at it through a lawyer's eyes? How long did it last? What kind of techniques were they using against somebody as young and vulnerable as Devante in order to get this confession? Well, first, I think it's important to note that, I mean, this starts in the middle of the night. So they have Devante, whether it's in the car, in the parking lot of the high school or in the police station from 1 a.m. through up until some point the next day, eight to 12 hours for round one. And that's only round one of multiple rounds that are to come over the next 24 to 48 hours. In that first round, they are playing the friend. They're buying him the burger. They're buying him the fries. He goes to the police station. He's playing on the computer. Computer. He's looking on social media to help him find people, to show him pictures of the guns of the people in the neighborhood who might have done this. And that's making him feel important and he has access to a computer that he doesn't always have access to at home. And at the end of that, by the midday the next day when they bring Devante home, he has signed a handwritten statement saying five kids from the neighborhood did this. He names them. Tone, 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 Los. Um, they did it with five guns. He names those five guns, a mini 14, a handgun, a 38 caliber, an assault style weapon. And he tells a story that they met up at a fast food restaurant earlier that day, Coney Island, to talk about this. Devante was with them leading up to it, but he freaked out and he didn't stick around. He went home and didn't go to this to Runyon Street with them. But he knows what happened. Do the police check out Devante's story? They do check out some of it. 
some of it doesn't match and they kind of proceed full steam ahead uh, inexplicably. They have five perpetrators versus the witnesses that Tay too. Uh, okay, who cares? Ballistics from the scene show definitively that this gun was an AK-47 and a 45 pistol. There's no question about that. The ballistics are not from a Mini-14. They're not from a 35 caliber. They're not from a handgun. They go check out this fast food restaurant they supposedly met up at, the Coney Island. That Coney Island is closed for construction and has been for months. They check out the people Devante has named, Tone Tone Los. They go pick up multiple of them. They question them that night, that morning. They're cleared by alibis and they're let go. But it doesn't take their sights off Devante. The story is, by this point, riddled with errors, right? It's the wrong people, the wrong guns, the wrong place at this Coney Island restaurant that's closed. Nothing there makes sense. But the police still have you in their sights, Devante. They come back and get you, right? And they bring you back to the station. And that's when things start to get even worse. Megan, they question Devante again. And tell us about the confession that results after the second round. So they do take Devante home briefly. I think during that time, they're picking up Tone Tone Los, the other guys. They're questioning them. And when they clear them and they realize, huh, this isn't making much sense, they decide we got to go get Devante again. So they go pick up Devante. Devante's mom is home at the time. They tell her, you know, we don't think your son's telling us the truth. We need to bring him back in and talk to him about this homicide. His mom says, okay. And she, as a mom, is, you know, socialized to do, encourages Devante to tell the truth, to tell the police. And from what Devante has always told me, things were dramatically changed from there. They had been his friends. They'd been helpful. They'd been encouraging before that. As soon as he's back in the car, they are aggressive. They're confronting him. They're yelling at him. They're telling him, we know you're lying. And at this point, they use a very common tactic of lying to Devante and using false evidence. They had taken his shoes earlier when they had him at the police station. They said, we tested your shoes. You have blood on your shoes. So we now know you were there. We know you did this and we know you're lying to us. So we don't want to hear anything else. We just want to hear the truth. Tell us what happened. Wow. So, I mean, Devante, I'm just trying to picture the the mental whirlwind that you must have been experiencing at this time after being picked up off the street in the middle of the night right after the shooting. What What was it like to realize that all of a sudden these officers who just a few hours earlier had been your friends, what was it like to realize that they were coming for you? It was hell. It was very um, stressful, very traumatizing. You, you You feel hopeless in situations like that, right? Because it's like, how did I get to this point, right? Um, I went from walking down the street to them showing me pictures of, the, like, the, the deceased people, people who was once alive. Now these people are deceased, right? And on top of that, like, everything was just, like, happening so fast. So it was, you know, it was, yeah. Stuff that we shouldn't expect even the most experienced adult to withstand, let alone a 14-year-old kid who's by himself and scared. You end up changing your story to try and please these guys, to try and get out of there, to try and go home, like you were saying. And the story that it becomes clear they want is a story where you were involved, where you did this. Can you tell us, Megan, what the final story was in Devante's final confession? 
the final story Devante tells isn't that much different than the original story he told that didn't make much sense and didn't match most of the facts, except that it now includes Devante as an active participant and as a shooter. So it has these four other people from the neighborhood who we now know some of those names were given to police by a witness that during that canvas that night. Um, it has these five guns that that don't match the ballistics at the scene. Um, but it has Devante going in. It has Devante doing the shooting. And then it has Devante running away on foot from the scene to his house, which also doesn't match the evidence. And it and Devante told police he threw his mini 14, was the which was the gun he fired at the scene, into a vacant field on AT&T property afterwards. Police went and checked that field. Um, they did not find any gun. And this usually is like a real red flag of an unreliable confession. If a suspect gives you a new fact that police don't already know and you conduct follow-up investigation and you prove it true, well, then that's the gold star standard of a reliable confession. But if you don't prove it true, that's a red flag and you need to question this confession and this suspect. It's a perfect storm, right? It's a unfortunately perfect recipe for how to get a false confession from the sleep deprivation to the interrogation techniques that were used. You mentioned the lies about the evidence, right? Um, the lack of counsel, lack of parent for somebody as young as Devante in that room. And once Devante gave that confession that they were driving for, <laughs> that they were coming to get during those 36 hours of off and on interrogation, Devante's charged as an adult and you get a lawyer, Devante, whose name, unfortunately, is pretty notorious in the world of wrongful conviction. Um, his name is Robert Slamica. Megan, can you educate us about just who Robert Slamica is? Yeah, Robert Slamica was a private attorney in Detroit who I don't know if it was well known at that time, but at this point is now notorious for misconduct and doing essentially a really bad a really bad job <laughs> at being a defense attorney. He was reprimanded formally um, by Bar Association at least six times, including in one other exoneration case where he helped helped essentially get an innocent man convicted and sent away for life. And since then, in more recent years, he has actually been disbarred for misconduct and, and criminal conduct. And I think we'll hear a bit more from Devante about what he did or didn't do for Devante in his case. But Devante essentially received no, no defense from this man. So my whole time in um, juvenile, I was in the juvenile detention facility for around eight months fighting four counts of first-degree murder, four counts of felony murder, armed robbery, assault with attempted murder, felony firearm. My attorney only came and seen me, what, four times? Wow. If that, what, 10-minute visits? I never brought any paperwork with him, no files, never, you know, nothing. No sense of, come on, like, let's try to build a defense. He didn't try to put up no type of fight, no effort, no. I don't even think he even called the witness. He didn't call any character witnesses, n nothing. Like, he, he didn't try whatsoever, you know. For him, I felt as if, like, it was just all about the money and, like, the greed. You know, he saw my family was in need, desperate need, trying their best to, like, you know, be there and, and protect me and to try to help figure, figure it out with me. He knew that. He took advantage of that. So is there charging your family money? while he's only visiting you four times, you know, short visits each one, and providing you with essentially no help. So what what goes down at trial, Megan, with, with Slamica at the helm of this so-called defense? 
of this innocent kid. Well, uh, first, I just want to point out what goes down or doesn't go down before trial. Slamica essentially, I mean, not essentially, he does no investigation of this case. And as we've already discussed from all of the glaring inconsistencies or blatant differences between the facts of the crime and Devante's confession, there was a lot to investigate. There was a lot to look into, a lot to disprove. He did nothing. One thing that happens in between that time, nothing to do with Slamica, but there's a state-ordered forensic psychological evaluation a couple months after the crime. In that, Devante recants his confession. He tells the psychologist exactly what happened in that interrogation room. He tells him this was false. He tells him he didn't do this. And he tells him why he falsely confessed. Slamica does nothing with that. He doesn't admit that at trial. So what happens at trial? The state puts on a parade of very compelling witnesses. They put on the detectives to talk about the horrific facts of this tragic crime. They put on the surviving victim to describe her experience of laying under this bed, seeing her friend shot and killed, thinking she's going to be killed. And then they have her have Devante stand up and say a couple words. And they say, does that sound like the voice you heard at the crime scene? And she says, sounds like it. We now know we should have known then, but voice comparisons are not a reliable form of evidence. It's meaningless. At that point, though, Slamica takes Devante inside and says, there's really nothing I can do here. You confessed. This witness says your voice matches the shooter. So you're going to get convicted. I think you should plead guilty. And that's what happens. This is unreal, right? I mean, what was it like, despite the fact that there could have been such a robust defense, to have your lawyer bring you into that back room and, and tell you that you should plead guilty to a quadruple homicide? It was, um, it was very, it was, it was a mess, you know. Um, at the time, like I didn't even know how to like read and write, right? So he got the plea deal from the prosecutor brought the plea deal to me. Like, I didn't even understand what is a, 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 a guideline score, what is gear 3G. And I didn't understand none of that. And he just handed me a, the paper and a pen and walked away from the table. It was like, sign this. Went over and was doing something in court, talking to somebody, came back and got it from me. Unbelievable. Railroaded from beginning to what turned out to be the end of your trial. You entered those pleas of guilty, barely knowing what it was you were doing. You signed a piece of paper in which you pled guilty to four homicides you didn't commit, and you were sentenced to 37 to 90 years in prison at age 15. This is a, sh a story that shocks the conscience. It should shock anyone who hears it. But here's the thing, Devante, even as you're being shipped off, at age 15 to start serving that 37 to 90 years. The story doesn't end. Instead, it takes a twist. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. What is the twist that happens, Megan, not long after Devante enters that guilty plea, gets sentenced, and goes off to start serving his time? Exactly two weeks to the day from the day Devante is sentenced to that 37 to 90 year sentence as a 15 year old kid. Exactly two weeks to that day, a man named Vincent Smothers is arrested at his home for a series of unrela- an unrelated shooting. The Detroit Police Department, same police department that had Devante, that interrogated him, that charged him, that convicted him, bring Smothers in and they interrogate him about an unrelated shooting. Smothers, because he's recently had an infant and has a family to protect, he does roll over and he admits some things. He admits a lot of things. He confesses to a series of 12 murders. Turns out Vincent Smothers is an assassin, a hired hitman, and he works for local Detroit drug dealers. He confesses to these 12 murders in detail, on video. Unlike Devante's interrogations, they videotape the entire course of Vincent Smothers' interrogation and confessions. Four of those 12 murders, well, four of those 12 murders are the 19741 Runyon murders. Smothers confesses to them in detail on video. And you know what? Those details match the crime scene facts perfectly. He tells the accomplice he did it with. There are two men. There are an AK-47 and a 45 caliber pistol, the two guns that perfectly match the, the ballistics at the crime scene. He can describe the house, the layout of that living room, where the bodies fell when they shot them, and he can describe the conversation that he himself had with that surviving victim in the back bedroom as she lay under the bed while a kid slept. That's not it. Smothers then tells them where he, they can find the gun he used. They go to that address, they get the gun, and it is a match. It's a confirmed match. It is the gun that was used at this crime scene. So this is two weeks after they put Devante away for life, and yet nothing happens. Nothing changes. Please tell me that the second this serial hitman confesses in accurate detail to the Runyon Street shootings, please tell me that someone in the Detroit Police Department or in the prosecutor's office or anyone who knew anything about this went to Devante or his family or his lawyer and said, oh my God, we got the wrong person. It smothers not Devante Sanford. It's the hitman, not the kid. I'm appalled to tell you, Laura, that not a single one of those things happened. 
I would say the Detroit police did nothing about it, but actually they did something about it because the detective who took Smothers to the bathroom in the middle of his interrogation was one of the detectives who interrogated Devante. And so he did something about it. He told Smothers, you know what? We already got the guy who did those Runyon Street murders. And Smothers said, well, you've got the wrong guy then. And what they did was they hid it. They hid Smothers' confession. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So Smothers confesses to 12 murders. They end up charging him with eight, right? They don't charge him with the quadruple homicide on Runyon Street that Devante had just pled out to. They convict Smothers on those eight, and it's like his confession to the Runyon Street homicides, they it's like it never happened. And we later heard some information that he may have even been offered a sweeter plea deal premised on the fact that he would never mention or testify to the fact that he did the Runyon Street murders. He was offered a plea deal not to come testify for me because at the time, like my lawyers was trying to get him to testify multiple times. And the, the prosecutor, because he was still fighting um, multiple murder cases as well. And um, the prosecutors reached out to him and basically uh, tried to offer him a deal where he wouldn't come to court and land his testimony and fight for my innocence. Wow. It's one of the worst cover-ups I have seen in 14 years of doing wrongful conviction work. Who was it that actually exposed this unbelievable cover-up? It was media. Um, The only reason this ever came to light was a reporter who heard that there was another person detained at the jail talking about that he actually did the Runyon Street murders and talking about that he did the murders that this kid was in prison for. Um, And at the time, this is like, I think, a year after Devante's sentence. So Devante has a post-conviction attorney, and she hears, thank goodness, a reporter reaches out to her and says, hey, I've got something you need, need to know. So this comes to light. It's You're a year in, Devante. What's prison life been like for you during that year? I can only say that if I were in that position at age 15, I'd be scared out of my mind. I, I, was, I was more than just scared. I was terrified. I was all in one, you know. Um, I never went through none of, any of that before. So to have all that coming at me and all that coming at me at one time, it was just... Yeah. I'm trying to put myself in your position. Trying to imagine the emotions that anyone would feel hearing that that Smothers confessed. You know, I can imagine you went through anger, you went through sadness, you went through who is this guy? I didn't even have no anger towards him. I'm I'm not into I'm not into judging people cuz I hate when I get judged. <laughs> You know, so I'm in like I'm not into judging people, eh? but what I am like, I'm thankful for Vincent Smothers. Vincent Smothers is the reason why I got these headphones on, and I'm able to do this, sit here in my home and talk to you guys. You know, it 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 took a, a, a quote unquote hitman to save my life, not the Detroit police, not you know the Wayne County Prosecutor Office, you know, uh, essentially a hitman and a, and a and a team of lawyers. Smothers tried hard once he knew what the injustice that had been done to Devante to right this wrong. He confessed to this crime 
at least eight to 10 times that first time to police, to his lawyer, to multiple rounds of Devante's lawyer, to the media. He wanted to go to the court. He signed multiple sworn affidavits under the penalty of perjury. I think Vincent Smothers is kind of the portrait of that. Even the people who have done some of the worst things, some of the most horrible things, still have humanity. And he was the only one at that point willing to fight to right that wrong. How does Devante's case and this this crazy situation of the hitman trying to help the kid, how does this come to you, Megan? As we had mentioned, when Smothers' confession came to light, it was about a year after, and he was in post-conviction in Michigan State Court, represented by the Michigan State Public Defender System. Well, you would think, okay, we have the reliable, corroborated, um, confirmed, ballistically confirmed confession from the true perpetrator. We should be able to get this undone, right? It pr- proved true that no, that's that's not how the system works. That's not not in Michigan and not in most states and court systems across our country. So Devante's case ended up working its way through the Michigan court system for another seven, eight years. And that's how it came to us. He had a public defender for a while. Um, it went all the way up to Michigan Supreme Court, but he lost and he lost because of a technicality. It was all the, ev- the evidence was there. Smothers was there. It was crystal clear Smothers did this. Devante Sanford did not do this. But the Michigan Supreme Court said, okay, we see your evidence, but it's in the wrong motion. What does that mean, the wrong motion? It, the, the form of document that was filed in the court that presented this crystal clear evidence that a kid was wrongfully in prison for life, it had the wrong title on it. And instead of just saying, okay, we'll treat this as the right motion, or instead of letting you refile in our court and come back to us in a month, they said, you need to go back to the beginning. And at a minimum, that's going to take years. Meanwhile, Devante, you're a teenager, right? And you're going from, you'd gone from 14 to 15 already. You're going 15 to 16, 17, 18. These are some of the most important years of life. These are the years of growing up, of learning how to move as an adult, learning who you are and who you want to be as an adult in this world, right? As you're watching your case wade through the morass of the Michigan court bureaucracy, what's it feel like to be sitting there as the minutes and the hours and the days tick by when the proof is so clear that you're innocent? It was like a roller coaster. Not only was I like fighting for my freedom, like I was also in prison and like literally had to fight for my life at times, seriously, you know, I, I was at war on like two fronts. Right. And at times I felt as if, OK, I, I'm not I'm not going to win one of these. So which one, you know, which which one is 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 the one worth losing? You get what I'm saying? So it was stressful. It was it was times where I had all the hope in the world. Then it was times I'm like, man, I might fuck around and die in prison, you know, so. Uh, sorry for my language, but it was times I didn't see this. I couldn't picture this, but but it happened. So I'm I'm forever grateful and thankful for that. Were there times that you let yourself hope when you were in prison? Yeah. Did that make it easier or harder to wait to have that hope? Harder, way harder, way harder. You you would do whatever it takes to get about that place. You don't want to be there more than 30 minutes, let alone, you know, multiple years. You know, I'm I'm forever grateful that 
I had the support and my support wasn't just regular support. My support came with a lot of, a lot of strength, a lot of like, um, well-grounded people. And that's what got me through, you know, um, times like I would be having conversations with my attorneys and I would be telling them like, and I don't know how to, like, how I'm going to keep doing this. Like, I just feel like giving up. They had said about a motion or a court date or maybe we, we was waiting for a report. I remember one time we was waiting for, like, the Michigan State Police report. Man, that report took forever. But I had them people around me, man, who, who, who um, they held my hand at times when I didn't want to even get up. After I didn't probably ran 20 miles, they come and come on, get up. We got to go, Devontae. We got to. You know, you got to be on it. You know, uh, my my legal team is the ones who, like, gave me, like, and my supporters, the ones gave me, like, that hope. Like, you know, you're going to make it up out of this. You're going to make it up out of this because you ain't you ain't got to worry about you. We got you. Just, you know, keep your head up. I don't know how anyone could be expected to get through anything remotely like this without an army of people behind you. One of those people was you, Megan, a pretty important person. You took Devante's case. It can be impossible so many times to undo a wrongful conviction, but you made the impossible possible in this case. Tell me what you what you had to do, who you had to get involved ultimately to free Devante Sanford. Thankfully, we didn't have to wait the years that it would have taken for that motion to work its way through the court system again, because an unusual thing happened. But a Michigan state police officer, um, a law enforcement body in Michigan that had never previously been involved in Devante's case, they read our motion and they called a member of our team and they said, this is one of the most shocking cases I've ever seen and one of the most compelling packages of evidence we've ever seen. We want to look into this case because we think an injustice has been done. And thank, thank God for that call. Um, and we often talk about working with kind of odd bedfellows or finding partners in this work that you don't expect. We certainly didn't expect to kind of partner with the Michigan State Police, but they did. They kicked off. And as Devante said, it took a long time, a year long reinvestigation of this case. It was a painful wait, but it shows the lengths they were willing to go to because they put a multi-officer team on this case, and they re-interviewed everybody, and they turned up evidence that made it impossible for the state to keep turning a blind eye. And is that what finally pushed Devante's case over the finish line? It is. Um, the Michigan State Police pulls all this together into a lengthy final report, and the judge, the trial judge on his case, vacates his conviction and thankfully orders Devante's immediate release from prison. And I'm smiling because I'm just picturing Devante walking out that day. And it's <laughs> still surreal. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. after all that wait, this stuff happened pretty fast. Once that report was turned over, it, that order got signed and, and he was walking out. What was it like, those first first few minutes and hours of freedom? Hopeful. It's crazy I had to go through all that to get a future. But I came home with a future. You know, um, plan, aspirations, goals, visions. And um, to this day, you know, um, I, I try my best one day, one step at a time to to accomplish everything, you know, um, that I sought out to do from in prison. That future is your present day. It's your now. 
and you got a lot, a lot of future in, ahead of you too. So what's what's life like now? I think for me, the the most like amazing part of my life, it wasn't even getting out. Like the most amazing part of my life is my son. My son is like everything. You know, I I I I, I wish I I had the chance to be like which was a kid like that freedom of of growing and um yeah just just being a dad you know um spending quality time with my son um my son don't supposed to be here my son is a blessing so that's how I treat him as such you know um spending quality time with him working on um my nonprofit giving back to the community um doing my motivational speaking work Lending my ear, like, not my ear, but my voice whenever, like, someone may need it. You know, when it comes to, like, criminal justice reform, gang prevention, violence prevention, and inner cities. I I just want to give back and try to help as many people as I can, not having to go through some of the things I have gone through. And if they are facing some of the things that I, I'm facing, maybe get some type of inspiration, and, um, you know, to... Don't give up, but don't give in, you know? I'm curious if there's anything you want to say to Vincent Smothers. Thank you. That man saved my life. That that man say like, literally, like, say, I don't know too many people, you know, who um, live those type of lifestyles and go through them type of things who will be willing to, like, stand up and accept responsibility, you know, um, I got friends and I know people that's in prison for crimes they didn't commit. You know, only reason why they sitting in prison is because the no snitching rule. Oh, I'm not going to snitch. I know my cousin did this or I know my friend did this, but I'm not going to say anything. Right. And um, I don't hold none against them people. You know, um, what you believe in is what you believe in. Right. But like some of those people in prison are living in some of the worst conditions in like possible no no money no food no letters no anything you basically just sitting in prison for something you didn't do and because you didn't want to tell you get what i'm saying and for that man to want to come and step up to the plate and take full responsibility for his for his actions to me that's the true definition of a man you know uh he didn't have to do that but he did megan if you could change one thing about this system so that it does not happen again what should we be doing? What reform should we be pushing, right? What needs to be changed? Devante was only convicted because of his confession, one that as a 14-year-old sleep-deprived kid, it was inevitable. Youth, as we have long known, need special protections in the interrogation room. And one that I know you're working on every day, Laura, but is getting is banning deception in interrogations for kids. And it has now passed in multiple states. There's no reason that law can't be passed in every state. And that is what the turning point in Devante's interrogation was. When the police lied to him about the evidence and said, we now know you did this because we found blood on your shoes. That was the turning point. That's what broke him down to that point of hopelessness where he would say anything to go home. And so if we can ban deception, I think that is a big starting point um, that can change how things are playing out for kids in the interrogation room. As we get to the end of this conversation, 
I am sitting in Jason Flom's chair. I'm lucky to be here talking to you both today. He always ends this podcast with a segment he calls Closing Arguments, where he turns off his mic and sits back and lets the person in your position, Devante, talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. I'm going to stay quiet. I'm going to thank you both for being here and sharing your stories and your wisdom. And Devante, this is your closing argument. I just think common sense needs to be used in some of these cases, just basic common sense. I understand, you know, um, people be having jobs to do, and those jobs come with a lot of stress. You got to think a homicide, that's somebody that's lost their life, someone that's no longer with us. But at the end of the day, you know, people need to step back and look at the whole picture versus just looking at just, just, just one little box. You get what I'm saying? Because, like, when you go back and... You just, when you speak on my case, even the average person with no type of law background, no type of anything, scratch their head. How? Like when I go out and I meet people, they, you was 14. How? You know, like how, so if, 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 if they coming up with that conclusion, how, how come these professional, these detectives, people, college degrees and Different things like that couldn't come up with that type of conclusion. Like, hold on, wait, something is off here. You know, like it's we missing something instead of having all gas, no brakes. You know, if that make any sense. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Lauren Eyrider. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. The senior producer for this episode is Jackie Polly, and our producers are Lila Robinson and Jeff Clyburn. Our editor is Roxandra Guidi. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Laura Nyrider. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Next week on the guest-hosted episodes of Wrongful Conviction, Kemba Smith will talk with Joyce Watkins, a woman who has lit up the world with not only her story, but her incredible spirit of perseverance. Joyce was in prison for 28 long years after her great-niece died in her care, even though anyone looking even a little bit closer at the details, would have and should have known right away that Joyce deserved none of the blame. This is a must-listen episode, and it's going to be right here next Monday in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.